Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Man, I, it's good to be here. My name is Matt Prine. I'm one of the uh, pastor elders here at RCB. Our, our lead pastor, Jonathan, is down preaching at Acts Community Church south of Houston. So uh, uh, I would ask that you would be praying for him uh, as he brings the word and then for safety as he drives home. Um, but we are going to continue in our journey through the book of Acts and through our series on the mission and the movement of God. And, and there's a pretty significant shift in the text today as we get into chapter 6. Uh, chapters one through five have been focused on gospel movement that's happening very localized within Jerusalem. And and it's happening amongst the Hebrews. Uh, But now here in chapter six, the shift is is that uh, the Hellenist Jews have kind of come back out of from the dispersion back to Jerusalem, and and they've come to know Jesus as their Lord, and and they are Greek-speaking Jews, so it's a different kind of culture than uh, what is at the church right now. Um, And and so this this, uh, expansion of the gospel is continuing. And it continues in uh, chapter 8, we're going to see the gospel move uh, out of the Jerusalem area and out of the, uh, the, the Greek-speaking Jews uh, to then Samaria and then very quickly to Ethiopia. And, and what I want you to keep in mind as we're walking through the book of Acts today and then through the rest of the series is the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he said that uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and, in, and to the end of the earth. So what we're getting to see here in the book of Acts is Jesus' words laid out and played out piece by piece. The, the amazing and really cool thing to think about is that this did not stop in Acts 28 when the book of Acts closed. This is continuing today. And we get to be a part of seeing this gospel movement happen to the ends of the earth. Before we get going into our text today, I want to take a moment and pray. Um, And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pray silently uh, and ask the Lord to open your eyes to the wondrous things that are found in his word, that you would be changed, transformed, renewed, and that you would walk out of here more bold and more committed to your faith than you were when you walked in. So take a moment and do that silently. And now, if you would, would you pray for me and ask that the Lord would speak through me, that I would be his mouthpiece and that he would move and ask him to get me out of the way so that you can see and respond to Jesus. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather to open your word freely. We thank you for the fact that you're moving and you're changing hearts. And Father, I pray that as we dive into your word, as we get into the book of Acts, God, that we would be swept up in what you're doing. 
and that gospel movement would happen at RCB, in our hearts, in our community. Father, we ask this for your glory and for our good, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a kid growing up, probably eight, nine, ten years old, uh, I had some wicked growing pains. I don't know how many in here had growing pains growing up. They're awful. If you you didn't have to walk through those, you count yourself blessed. It was terrible. Uh, And and usually the pain would start uh, for me in the late afternoons, early evening, and it would always be in my legs. Uh, my, my calves would kind of cramp up, my knees would hurt, my, my quads would just kill me. Uh, and there was one time in particular, and I remember this clear as day, uh, that, that the pains hit so hard and so fast that all I could do was just kind of cry and scream. And, and my parents were used to this because I had growing pains before, uh, but this was a little bit different. Um, I, I did not stop screaming. And my grandfather, he was a doctor, and so at some point they were like, okay, well, let's, let's call the doctor and, and see uh, if we need to do something. So they called my granddad, and he said, hey, just bring him over. We lived about half an hour from, from him. And he said, bring him over, and I will, uh, I'll check him out and make sure he's okay. And, and I remember the car ride over was excruciating because it felt like every bump kind of exacerbated the pain. Um, and, and my parents, you know, now looking back, now that I have kids and I've driven a car with children screaming their heads off in the back, it's probably a worse drive for them than it was for me. But nonetheless, we get to my grandfather's house, and no sooner do we pull into the driveway and they turn off the ignition that the pains just went away. <laughs> it was miraculous. And, and uh, so it's like, oh yeah, hey granddad, how you doing? He was like, buddy, you hurting? I'm like, not anymore. It's good. I'm, I'm good. But that's how my growing pains were, is that they would come on real quick, it would hurt, it would be painful, and then almost as fast as they came on, uh, it, would, it would stop. And when I read through the book of Acts, I, I think about those growing pains. I think about these moments uh, of, of pain that kind of come on quickly, but then uh, it's resolved and they can continue growth. We see this throughout the book of Acts, where God is doing these amazing, huge things, there's these mountaintop moments, but then there's these moments uh, of hurt, and sometimes that hurt is intense. And this is exactly what we're going to see in Acts chapter 6 today. Uh, Pastor Kevin already read it, uh, but let's open it up, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3 in Acts chapter 6. It says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So remember, at this point in church history, at this point in in the life of this church, there are literally thousands and thousands of professing Christians. This is not a small gathering. This is a massive gathering of of Christians, and they pull all of them together. Not only is it a massive gathering, it's a diverse gathering. This is not just a homogenous group of people that are all the same. Remember, there's the Hellenist Jews, and then there's the Hebrews. And there were some vast distinctions between them. Remember, the, the Hellenists had kind of returned to Jerusalem from out of the dispersion. They, they were speaking Greek. Uh, they had been living amongst the Gentiles. They, they were different in language, culture, history, and customs. And this kind of set them apart from the Hebrews. Now, now the, the problem was, is that when there is a community like that trying to fit into another community that's radically different, it, it opens up the possibility for that uh, new community to be marginalized. And that's exactly what we see happen here in the text. 
that the, the Greek-speaking Jews are being marginalized, even within the church. The, the Hellenist widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution. This is not a small deal because uh, these are women that would not have been able to care or provide for themselves, and so they needed the assistance of the church to be able to provide them with their food, their clothing, the the things that they're going to need to thrive uh, in life. And so this is a serious issue uh, that is arising in the church. And so that's going to bring us to our first point. Gospel movements come with conflict. Gospel movements come with conflict. Uh, there, there's probably many of us in this room uh, that, that you would do just about anything to avoid conflict, just about anything. And I think it's definitely fair to say that the large majority of us probably dislike conflict. We don't want to be engaged in conflict. And there's many reasons for that. Conflict is, is scary sometimes. It's intimidating. Um, it, it is mentally taxing and emotionally stressful. Uh, and, and on top of that, Uh, we can get into this place where our own personal insecurities and, and, you know, shortcomings are exposed, and that's not a fun thing to face. And when conflict is handled poorly, it can end up resulting in the loss of a friendship. So many people just, you know, seek to avoid conflict. They don't want to face it. The idea is that if we don't address it, it's eventually just going to go away. But the problem is, is that conflict rarely just goes away. It, it builds up, and at some point, there's going to be a, a boiling point, and it will come out. Additionally, conflict is necessary within the life of a Christian and ultimately within the life of the broader church. Uh, let me illustrate this for us in a, in a couple different ways. How is conflict necessary for the individual? Well, let's take the gospel, right? The gospel starts with conflict for individuals. How so? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We get Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is a conflict? We are faced with a conflict that we are broken, that we are fallen, that we are sinners, um, that uh, because of this, we are under condemnation, and there's nothing that we can do about it. This is a massive problem. This is a massive conflict, uh, and it afflicts all of us without exception. There is not a single person that does not have this conflict. And, And so we have to recognize that Um, before we're able to move forward. Then check this out. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5, it starts off with two of the most amazing words I can possibly imagine. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By his grace, you have been saved. See, in our conflict, in the conflict for an individual to come to know the gospel and the salvation of Jesus Christ, the Lord gets to be the hero of the day, making us alive, washing us completely clean of every ounce of sin and shame. We got to recognize this conflict and our inability to do anything about it. Otherwise, we will never experience that mercy of God. So do you understand how conflict is actually a tool that will drive us towards reconciliation with God. It is a tool by which we come to know the Lord. Conflict is necessary, is a necessary part of the gospel movement in our own hearts. Okay, so that's for the individual. What about the church? 
How, how does conflict fit into the context of, of the local church? Well, again, when, when you take a group of people who are all broken and sinners and you cram them together in close proximity to do life with one another, especially when they're from different backgrounds and cultures and languages and customs, there is bound to be a measure of conflict. It's just, it's going to happen. Satan knows this. And he's going to try and use this to drive further division between the people that are having the conflict and ultimately try and break up the fellowship in the church. But the conflict does not have to be a bad thing. In fact, it can be a powerful tool within the church as we uh, live out this life. It presents us with the opportunity to display the redemptive love of Jesus Christ to one another in here and so that people outside the faith can see what that redemptive love looks like. Listen, in the era of cancel culture and radically responding and dismissing people who are different than us or think different than us, this is exactly what we need in the context of the church. Imagine if churches handled conflict in in this way. Instead of division, conflict led to unity. Instead of canceling one another, it led to more intentional engagement with one another. Instead of breeding hate, it fostered love. You see, churches that, that live this out would be a place that the world would want to be coming to, that it would draw people in because there's no fear of being canceled here. There's no fear of being rejected because you're brought into the family of God, and in him we all have equal standing as children of the king. See, I think the Western church has become largely irrelevant to those outside the faith because in many cases we look no different than the world, especially when it comes to handling conflict. Why would you want to plug yourself into that when it's no different than what you're already in? See, conflict creates this opportunity for us to either display the redemptive love of Christ or to mimic the world and make a mockery out of him. But either way, gospel movement will come with conflict. The, the question is, is how, do we, how do we take that conflict and how do we use that? What, what does it take to be able to display this redemptive love? Let's look at Acts. I'm going to read verse 3 again through verse 6. It says, uh, The brothers pick out from among you seven men full or, or of good repute, pardon me, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on him, on them. This interaction is unbelievably powerful in so many different ways. First, they, they don't ignore the problem. The, the, the 12 apostles don't just try and turn a blind eye to the conflict. They don't, uh, they don't minimize it or dismiss the people that have the complaint. They take action, and then they invite the whole church. Remember, this is thousands of people. They invite the whole church into the process of bringing solution to this conflict. And part of what makes this, this uh, interaction so incredible is think about what the complaint was. Remember, that the Hellenist widows were being overlooked in the distribution. Well, who was overseeing the distribution? Who was doing the distribution? The 12. 
So, so the problem, the, the challenge that's being brought up is being spoken against the 12 themselves. And, and, and they respond in such humility and grace. And this brings us to our second point. Gospel movements need spirit-filled leaders. Gospel movements need spirit-filled leaders. When the, when the spirit fills leaders in churches... There, there are some amazing things that can begin to happen within the context of that church. First, the Spirit gives people the ability to wisely navigate criticism. We, we have all been, the, uh, been faced with criticism uh, from others, every one of us, without exception. Some of that has been justified, and sometimes it's not. And, and here's the deal. In our flesh, we will tend to jump to our own defense quickly. Or, or we'll make excuses or try to explain away this thing that's being criticized. But, but in the Spirit, when we're filled with the Spirit, He gives us His ability to be able to hear the criticism, uh, assess the truth in this criticism, and then respond to that criticism with grace and holiness. And this is exactly what the disciples did. They, they recognized that things were not balanced well, things weren't happening how they should be happening. Uh, and, and the result, because of this imbalance and this problem, is that real people's lives were being affected. And, and so what happened? They begin this process of, of seeing uh, things made right, and the result is, is that the Hellenists in this community are elevated within the church. Their dignity, value, and worth is, is you know, displayed and they were acknowledged, and they were celebrated, and which fostered a, a deeper unity in the church. So that's the first thing it does. It gives, these people, gives people the ability to navigate criticism uh, in, in, in a wise and holy manner. The second thing is, is the Spirit helps people acknowledge their own calling and purpose within the body. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that uh, the apostles say in, in chapter 2, they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, again, the, the 12 were serving as pastors. They were the shepherds. They were the elders. They were the, the leaders of this church body. And as such, their primary responsibility is to preach the word, to pray, and to lead the church in prayer. They understood the heart-transforming power that God's word has, uh, and they wanted to devote themselves to that. But they also knew that there was a, a need to meet material needs in the community, in the body. It's, it's not a one or the other, it's a both and. You see, if they did one without the other, then they would have gotten an incomplete picture of who God is and, and what the gospel is really about. Uh, they, they have to preach the word, but they also have to provide for these widows' needs. So if we did one without the other, then again, we get an incomplete picture. Think about it. If we preach the gospel, but we don't care for people's felt needs, then we're not encompassing and encapsulating the heart of God. Because the heart of God is to transform people's hearts and then meet their needs. I'm not saying that we're all going to be wealthy and healthy and all this stuff. I'm saying their, their needs God cares about. God cares about our needs. So you can't preach the gospel without meeting felt needs. The second part is, what if we met felt needs but didn't preach the gospel? This is incomplete as well. Because if we meet felt needs but not get around to the gospel, this, this life-transforming truth that they can have salvation in Jesus Christ and be made right with God, the only thing we're doing is prolonging their road to hell. 
This is part of the reason that RCB is so passionate about God's word and meeting needs. And it's part of our vision. Part of our vision is that we would share God's gospel and grace to Brian and beyond. So serving tables, managing food distributions, meeting felt needs uh, in the church, while these are all good and necessary things, was not what these 12 were supposed to be doing. And, And quite honestly, pastors and churches still struggle with this today. There's a mentality that's kind of flowing through churches today um, that if they're, that, that ministry is the pastor's job. I mean, you probably have heard that. Yeah, ministry is the pastor's job. If there's something happening up at the church, the pastor needs to be leading it. If the church is going to do something outside, some mission, the pastor needs to be leading it, unless it has to do with women, and then the pastor's wife has to lead it. No, that's not what the pastor's supposed to be doing, at least if we want to hang on to our pastors for any length of time. So what are pastors supposed to be doing? And go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says this, And he, that is the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Did you catch that? The pastor's role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the job of pastors at a church is to equip the church, the church members themselves, to do the ministry. That's all of us. And the pastor's job is to equip us to do that really, really well. John Stott, a theologian, said this, a vital, vital principle illustrated in this incident, which is of urgent importance to the church today, it is that God calls all his people to ministry, that he calls different people to different ministries, and that those that are called to prayer and the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities, even for things that are good, right? The pastor's job needs to be focused on preaching the word and prayer. The third thing that happens with the Holy Spirit indwelling, filling, leading leaders is that he helps people pursue Christ-centered solutions that unify the body. The apostles rally the church to take a front row seat uh, in this problem solving. They tell them to choose seven men uh, who can take the ministry of serving tables. Uh, and, and this, by the way, uh, is, is widely accepted as the moment at which the office of deacon was established in the church. These, these are the first deacons in the church. And there were three characteristics that the apostles said that these guys needed to have. One is that they had to have a good reputation. They had to be well thought of of people. The second was that they had to be filled with the Spirit. Apparently, you need to have the Spirit if you're going to do ministry, right? And the third thing was that they needed to be filled with wisdom. So they employed the church body in the selection process uh, of these men who would ultimately be examined uh, and then appointed by the apostles uh, to serve as the first deacons. What's so interesting to notice here is the names, and I know that's something we don't typically think about because we don't think about names and their history, meaning, all of that. Um, but, but the names, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, these are all Greek names. They're all Greek names. It, it, it's possible that most or even all of these deacons were from the Hellenist Jews. <laughs> think about that for a second. Imagine what would, would have been communicated to the 
Hellenist Jew population that these guys just got appointed to be the ones that are going to be running point on this felt needs ministry. It, it would have said, we see you. We hear you. We acknowledge you. And we value you. We want you speaking into this whole thing, right? It, it's going to restore confidence in one another throughout the church, and it's going to display unity in the body. The other thing that I think is beautiful, because of the fact that the Hellenists went through this marginalization, that they were the ones that were kind of pushed aside, they know what that feels like. They know the hurt that's there. And so I would imagine that they would not want anyone, whether Hellenist or Hebrew, to be left out or marginalized from here. This is brilliant what's going on here, and the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding all of it. So, so this office of deacon is a vastly important role that the Lord is, leads these apostles to install. Uh, deacons were not simply appointed so that they could get a job done. It's not like the apostles were looking for warm bodies where there's like, yeah, you, 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 and you. Yeah, come on, come with me. That's not what's happening here. They're looking for people whose lives are different because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. They're looking for people whose lives are exemplary in their walk with the Lord and their willingness to serve. We see the Apostle Paul talk about this quite a bit in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, I think. And it says that deacons are people who have been tested and proven. Well, what does tested and proven mean? This means that they have walked through the fire and they've come out stronger, not more brittle. He talks about the fact that they, are, they should be filled with faith and have an unwavering devotion to Christ and his church. You see, deacons, they are examples for the rest of the church to emulate. And they've got grit. They've got grit. Look at Stephen. You know, Stephen's kind of singled out here, which is interesting. This is a little bit of foreshadowing here. We'll, we'll get to this in the text. Stephen talks, it, it talks about Stephen saying he's a man filled with the spirit and faith. Well, here's Stephen's story if you don't know it. Stephen, they lay their hands on Stephen and they, uh, they appoint him as one of the deacons. And his first act as a deacon is to proclaim Jesus and then get stoned to death. They killed him. And he became the first martyr of the Christian church. Now we look at that and we're like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. That's the worst thing ever that could happen. The Lord used that. The Lord used Stephen's death to embolden the church and their devotion to Christ. Listen, when you see someone with that type of commitment to something, it makes you want to say, yeah, I'll, I'll give my life for that as well. See, Stephen being bold in his faith and, and standing before the Lord and proclaiming him, even if it means his own demise, challenged and encouraged the believers to do the same thing. See, deacons became a model for the rest of the church to begin to follow and look after. So here's the application point here. Model your life after the people in the church that are living this out. Be like those people who are walking in faith, sacrificially pouring themselves out for both the Lord and his church. I want to give you two great examples of that here at RCB. Caleb Allison and Seth Berry are two of our amazing deacons here at RCB. There is so much that these guys do behind the scenes that none of you have any idea about. Every week, 
They show up to church early to make sure that everything is in place so that we can come and we can encounter the Lord without being hindered by the dumb things that, that would maybe throw us off. There's no toilet paper in the bathroom or there was a sign and I was late that I missed. They're doing all of that to help empower us to be able to encounter the Lord more effectively on a Sunday morning. And then they stay late to straighten the chairs and make sure everything's cleaned up. They're, they're working in between services to try and sanitize everything, right? Because that's where we are. They do baptism prep, so they show up either earlier on a Sunday morning or even on a Saturday to get the baptistry filled up and even heated. <laughs> For those of you that were baptized prior to the heater, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about COVID response. Good grief, the past six months have been an absolute nightmare for our world. And for Christians who are trying to figure out how to worship God and pursue him with everything that they have, these two guys, they were integral in our process of handling our COVID response. And how do we continue to worship in the most safe but God-honoring way possible? Caleb leads benevolence for our church. So he oversees people who are in need and getting their, their needs met. Not all of them, but as much as we can. He, he's the one who's kind of overseeing that. Uh, our church logistics. How do things happen uh, day in and day out here at RCB? Caleb is a, an integral part of those conversations and a valuable part of, of seeing how we're going to best minister to the church and the community. It's funny. He and, he and Tori uh, had baby Sayla uh, about six weeks ago. You know, he only missed one Sunday. And the only reason, I think, that he only missed one Sunday is that Selah was born on Sunday. <laughs> I swear, if that kid had been born on Monday or, or Saturday, he, he'd have been in and on. It's, that's just who he is. What about Seth? This summer, uh, Seth was super faithful at our prayer gatherings. This dude is coming up to the church on, on Tuesday nights, and he is pouring himself out in prayer for our church. And then he's walking through the community finding people to talk to and pray for. Not only this, but he's been a huge piece of our Wednesday night food distribution in the community. I could go on and on and on. Listen, Caleb and Seth, they don't do these things because they have the title of deacon. They have the title of deacon because they were doing many of these things already. Samuel Brangle was the commissioner of the Salvation Army in the early 1900s, and he said this, The final estimate of men shows that history cares not an iota for the rank or title a man has borne, or the office that he has held, but only the quality of his deeds and the character of his mind and heart. I think this begins to encapsulate this idea of spirit-filled leaders. They're not looking for the title. They're living this way because that's how God has called them to live. So I don't tell you to look at Caleb and look at Seth or any other leaders at our church for that matter just to be like Caleb and Seth. That's not the point. I tell you to emulate these guys because they're following Jesus really, really well and pouring themselves out for our church body and for the Lord. My prayer is that we would have a church filled with people like that. That they would take personal ownership of the ministry that the Lord has allowed us to be a part of here. Notice I said allowed. This is not something the Lord has demanded of us. 
He's allowing us to be co-laborers with Christ. I'm praying that sacrifice, dedication, service, devotion, boldness, faith would be the norm of RCB people, especially our members and leaders. And I'm praying for this because I think that God gets a ton of glory when churches operate like this. Not to mention, we need more deacons. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that day that Pastor Jonathan, Kevin, and I uh, get to lay on hands, pray, and install some new deacons. And I'm, I'm telling you, that day, those people, whoever they are, they're going to be with good reputation, filled with the Spirit and wisdom. And I think they're going to look a whole lot like Caleb and Seth. So gospel new movements need spirit-filled leaders, and I would add they also need spirit-filled church members and, and attendees. So what's driving all of this? What's driving this gospel movement that we've been talking about? Let's look at verse 7. And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what's the, what's the driver here? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. That's our third point. Gospel movements are driven by the word of God. Gospel movements are driven by the word of God. Listen, any movement that is going to describe itself as a gospel movement must be driven by and built on God's word. Without the word of God, gospel movement does not happen. It cannot happen. Beyond that, without the word of God, there's nothing here. Just catch that for a second. Remember Genesis 1, the refrain that we see over and over again. God said, God said, God said. God's words, God word, God's word has power of creation. And not only that, but Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that the, the, the universe is upheld by the power of his word. You want to talk about something that has power. God's word is holding all of this together and keeping us from just exploding into atoms, just floating through space. It's a recurring theme that starts in Genesis and goes all the way through the book, all the way through Revelation. In the Old Testament, we find passage after passage describing this infinite worth of, of God's word, especially in the Psalms and Proverbs. And in fact, if you go to Psalm 119, you're going to find something really, really interesting. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, uh, longest book, really, chapter in the Bible, um, and there is 176 verses. Do you know that nearly all of those 176 verses have a reference to God's word? Nearly every single one of them, God's word, God's law, God's precepts, God's testimonies. Proverbs was written, as it says in chapter 1, verse 1, for us to know wisdom and instruction and to understand words of insight. And again, this theme just continues on and on. Let's go to the New Testament. You look at Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, he, he's being faced with uh, the temptation of, of the, the devil to turn rocks into bread. And he says, is, as it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. And, and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. 
This is precisely why the, the 12, the apostles, said in verse 2 that it's not right that they give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Remember, these are the same guys that walked with Jesus for three years. They got to hear his words firsthand. They got to witness the power of his words when he would speak a word and people would be healed. So right here, I, I, I have to believe that, that the words of Jesus from John chapter 6 are echoing through their hearts, right? There's this interaction where Jesus says this. He says, uh, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. If you remember the story, uh, this is a moment where it says that a great number of Jesus' disciples turned away from following him. They turned away and they left him because his words had offended them. And he turns to the 12 and he asks them a simple question. And he, he just says, do you want to go away as well? Peter pipes up as Peter always does. But man, I hear like this surrender in his voice. Jesus says, do you want to go away too? And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where, like, where, where do we go? He says, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That has to be going through their minds as they're thinking about this. See, they understood the transformative power that God's word has. And they also knew the importance of caring for people. This is exactly why they put the deacons in place, because they knew the importance of preaching the word. Let the deacons handle the, the felt need ministry. We are going to preach God's word. Lord, help us. Lord, help us if we think that we are going to transform lives here in Bryan and beyond by crafty or polished words of men, because it's not going to happen. May we have an unwavering commitment to God's word and to the power that it has to bring life, to bring hope, to bring peace, to bring reconciliation, the thing that this world is dying for right now. And gospel movements are driven by the word of God. I want to close with this. I did not like the growing pains as I got older. <laughs> I don't like pain now, just so we know, to get that out there. I don't like walking through pain. But if the pain, the growing pains that we endure here at Restoration make us look more like Jesus and less like the world, then praise God, bring it on. There's no greater thing that the Lord can do for us here than to mold us into the church that he desires and the church that he envisions. Not the one that Jonathan, Kevin, or I envision. Now, Lord willing, he will place that vision on our hearts and lead us and guide us into that, but this cannot be ours it has to be his. So we covet your prayers as the pastors of this church that we would be able to be completely and totally driven by the Spirit. Because we're human, <laughs> broken, fallen, sinful. We need God to direct that. Gospel movement's coming with growing pain. It's just the way it is. So when 
that conflict comes, don't avoid it at all costs because God may be trying to use that to strengthen his church and you. Gospel movements need spirit-filled leaders. So pray for the leaders of this church to be compelled by the spirit of God. And strive to be one of those spirit-filled leaders yourself. And remember that the gospel movements are driven by the word of God. So saturate yourself in the word and demand that we as a church stay firmly rooted in this. This is where the words of eternal life come from. So demand that and ask the Lord to help us as a church cherish his infinitely powerful word. I don't know where each of you is in your faith journey. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're walking with him in faith. Maybe you just got dragged here. Your roommate came and dragged you along. I don't, I don't know. Um, but here's the deal. Jesus loves you desperately. And that conflict I was talking about at the beginning of the sermon, where are you at in relation to that conflict? Have you faced that conflict? Have you acknowledged the fact that you're broken? Don't lie to yourself. We all know we're broken. If you acknowledge that, and you've acknowledged the fact that Jesus is the only one who can do anything about that. Because he will do something about that. If you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus, you can come talk to me, you can talk to Matt, Pastor Kevin, any of our leaders here. We'd love to walk with you through that. My prayer is that God's going to wake somebody up today, give them new life. I'm going to pray, and we're going to respond in worship. And as we respond, I'm going to have myself over here, Pastor Kevin, I'm going to have him over here. We want to pray for you. Just respond to God. Ask, beg for that gospel movement to burn through our church for his glory and for our good.